I would like to propose a podcast in which lesbians from all over the world can listen to lesbian affairs, and that can include anything from flannel shirts to cats, cat litter, cat sitters, hot cat sitters, lesbian affairs itself, um, politics, radical lesbians, veganism, non-veganism, anything. Welcome to a lesbian affair. Hello, hello. We're back for an episode and it's, it's been quite a long time so thank you for bearing with me. My name's Jess and I'm joined today by Alice Frick and Lauren Carl. Thank you for coming. How are you? Well thank you. Thank you for having us. We're very excited to be here to chat with you. Um, I guess so everyone knows Lauren is this American sounding one and Alice. Yeah Alice is the Austrian sounding one. <laughs> That's me Alice Frick. And, and, and Jess is the omnia sounding one. You can still figure out where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, how did you get to know each other? How does an Austrian-sounding person get to know an American-sounding person in England? That's well, a very, very good question. That's it's a very. Lo- it's a. It's, all right. How much time do we have? Yeah. So I basically I left the Austrian Alps in 2009 and ventured to Hollywood because I thought Hollywood needs another comedian, and they didn't. They didn't. But I did. I did meet Lauren. We. I was doing an improv course there, and I've met Lauren on the improv course, and yeah, that. I think the first, I think I came late the first lesson. Actually, you did. I totally remember that. Yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't find. He was the only Austrian in the improv class. So it was definitely, you know, noticeable. Yeah. Um, I made a big entrance really late, which is not good because, you know, Germans are known for being on time. So I think I have to be on time as well because mm. I have a German accent. Yeah. But you didn't do your people proud, Alice. No, I didn't. And I was pretty drunk from the day before. So I had a massive hangover, probably smelled Reeks like alcohol. alcohol. <laughs> and I came late. So it was, yeah, it was a bit embarrassing, but somehow we became friends, maybe because of that. <laughs> well, Lauren smelled the alcohol and said, I'm friends with her. <laughs> Well, I think the thing is we ended up then later on becoming more than friends because Alice and I dated each other for, for five years. So, oh, um, forgot, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I ended up coming over um, to England to get my master's in theater and we kind of kept in touch throughout that time. She, I just moved over here. My mom kind of came with me to like help settle in before school started. I think I had like two months prior to the school starting and Alice ended up having a comedy gig and I ended up going to it because we were, we were, we would just talk, I don't know, via email and stuff prior to that because we were friends. And then, and then it's just history in the making from there, really from that comedy night on. Um, And then we were together five years and now we're just like best friends and that's amazing. Have a lot of creative things we like to do. So it's a very lesbian story, actually. Yeah, I think that's the most hardcore thing about being lesbian is that you kind of like have these amazing friendships with your exes. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> so um, we need to kind of flesh out who you are and, and where you come from. Now, I have had the pleasure of recording with Alice before. Thank you for your patience there. And you mentioned something about your time in America that I found quite funny. What's your experience with the legal system? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I basically... I traveled through, so I went to Los Angeles and I did everything there. I also had the night in an American jail, which was quite, <laughs> which was a misunderstanding because the thing is I got pulled over and I had drinks, but I was not under over the border. So I was fine. 
But the officers, they, they did these tests with me and they asked me to walk on the line. I did that, to touch my nose. I did that. Everything was fine. But then they said, close your eyes and count from 30 backwards. And I did that and I counted, but I didn't know that you have to count out loud. So I was just standing there for like 30 seconds, counted in English silently from 30 backwards. And then I opened my eyes and said, I'm done. They didn't like that. <laughs> but I, I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And I was just, and then they put me, they brought me to jail and they did the testing, but it was fine. But they said, well, we think you're drunk and we have, <laughs> you have to wait until somebody picks you up. But I didn't have friends at the time. And uh, because I was just pretty fresh to the States and I didn't know who to, I didn't know a number by heart or anything. I didn't know who to call. So I spent the whole night there and then they let me out again. And only a few weeks later, I told that story at the party and somebody looked at me and said, what, you counted silently? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she's like, no, 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 no. You are not supposed, you are supposed to count out loud. And then I realized, <laughs> oh dear, that was a mistake. Well, well, we kind of like already segueing into the, the world of cultural clashes. And I wonder if we can actually see that through a, a lesbian lens, quote unquote, because um, you left the Alps for America counted to 30 silently, ended up in a jail, and somewhere yeah. along the line met, met Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. so, I'm, I'm just wondering, Lauren, when you first met Alice, did you have a sense of her, her humor and, and what position comedy played in her life? Or what was your first impression? <laughs> I, I mean, like, no, I'm kidding. I, I didn't know what to expect with that one. No, but... Um, <laughs> I, I guess it's, I guess it's interesting because obviously we met in an improv course, which um, I mean, even doing improv or comedy in your own language is not easy. But to then do it in a second language and pick up, you know, there's so many cultural differences. I did a little bit of stand up comedy when I kind of moved over here. Like when Alice and I were dating, I she inspired me to, to, to try it out. And it's funny because when I would sometimes tell some of the jokes to my friends in the States, they're like, Oh, that's, that's hilarious. And then over here, sometimes some of, the, some of the phrasing I would use, some of maybe the Americanisms, or I guess if you're talking about specific events that like, or even products that might've been in the States or whatever that wasn't used over here, it didn't always land as, as well here. But what I do find very like, you know, I'll give, I'll give, uh, you know, two thumbs up to Alice is, um, with her stand-up comedy, she does do a really good job at bridging, I guess, the cultural gap, or I think having a very good understanding of where she is to be able to do comedy in a second language and really pick up on a lot of the puns and the Englishisms, I guess, you know, uh, British English, you know? So I think I was definitely, cause her English of course has improved cause we've known each other for, well, sometimes that's a debatable one. <laughs> this is what I worry about. I'm like, you've lived here 10 years, Alice. What's I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But especially from, I think when I first met her in, in LA and I guess it's just made the, the comedy obviously improve more, but I think doing improv in another language really got gave you a good understanding of the culture because I think when we look at comedy in different countries, it tells us a lot and it's reflective of the society that we're doing it in. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's a very brave and courageous thing to do to start from scratch. So maybe we need to kind of hash that out a little bit more. So Alice, how did you get into comedy and where did it start? It um, started in Austria, also kind of by accident because I did a lot of improv and we did a show called Hands Up where improv performers were on stage and after 10 minutes or if, if you were not fun enough the audience could vote you out 
And I was so scared of being voted out. So I started to write my own comedy sets and I performed them and I always hit the 10 minute mark. So I never got voted off stage. And then my teacher said, well, that's not improv. You're kicked out of that group. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I don't understand. <laughs> but basically that was the format of comedy. And But for me, everything was new and I just started acting. So I didn't quite understand what's okay and what's not okay to do. But then I, I applied to a comedy competition in Austria and I won that. And the prize was to do a solo show. And I didn't have a solo show, but I said, of course I have a solo show because I had three months and I thought, okay, I can do that. <laughs> and then after three months, I had a 90 minute solo show because they are quite long in Austria. So it has to be 45 minutes, break 45 minutes. And then I thought, wow, I can do that. So I can apply to Germany. And then I also thought after I finished my studies, I just go to the States and see where I end up. <laughs> and it brought you back to it brought you back to Europe in London. That's where. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I think I'm wondering if you're leaving something out there because you did have a bit of a stint with the German media as well. Like you were getting traction in Germany, right? Yeah, I did a, a little bit in Germany. I performed at the Quatsch Comedy Club. I did a newcomer show there, and I won that as well. And then I came to the regular club and then I have done a few TV things, but also only the newcomers. But I kind of always was drawn to do something in English or to, to go to America. For me, America, I mean, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger went there. I wanted to go there too. <laughs> <laughs> Country of, of uh, I don't know, possibilities. Basically, it's America is, Lauren can confirm that maybe it's a little bit more tricky to live in LA because everyone, literally everyone is an actress. They haven't even studied acting, but they feel like they want to become an actress. They have money or an actor. They get an agent, a PR person. So it's really hard. The competition for the visa, it's hard. You get into jail easily. So I think the UK is <laughs> I mean, to some of our listeners, those who are from Germany, you will know what Quatsch Comedy Club is. But um, I personally grew up knowing that as a format. So it's, it's quite something when, when we say that you just started from scratch and went over and then now ended up in the UK. That's, that's a brave move. And um, you're successful with that too. So it's fantastic. Now, Lauren, yes. <laughs> your story is a yeah. little bit different because you, you don't just do uh, burlesque acts and drag king stuff. You're, you're doing acting and your voice is your tool as well, from what I remember. So, yeah. How did you end up there? In L.A. Um, well, it, it was it was definitely always a dream of mine. Like, you know, I started acting kind of when I was 13. I'm from the East Coast originally, right outside of Philadelphia. Pennsylvania is the name of the state. It's right underneath New York. Um, and so I ended up going like in the state of sports scholarships. I ended up playing division one lacrosse, which brought me to Berkeley, which is right outside of San Francisco, which I will just say for gayness vibes, that is where Lauren came out. I mean, it's a very, as I'm sure many of you know, listening, it is a super gay friendly city. So definitely um, I had a lot of fun in college. Um, <laughs> getting to know myself. But so anyway, so once um, I was finished with that, my goal really was, it was always to pursue acting. So I ended up moving down to Los Angeles where I was in a few movies. I did some voiceover work. Um, yeah. And, and then I was there for about five years and then I kind of just wanted a change. I mean, LA, there is so much great stuff about it. Don't get me wrong, but it is just, it is like, 
one city in the world where literally everyone who's going there for the most part is going there to be in the entertainment business, which of course is going to bring its pros and cons. You know, like it is nice to be surrounded by so much creativity, but sometimes, you know, sometimes people think they're bigger than they are. Right. And then you get roped into things or, you know, sometimes being a woman, you know, over there, um, you know, sometimes you're never pretty enough. You're never thin enough. And it's interesting because I find how they measure like acting here versus uh, over in the States. Because over here to be a part of equity, which is one of the acting unions, you either have to go to one of the 23 certified acting schools or you have to have numerous amounts of credits to be able to be in that and equity it just kind of protects you gives you it's you know it's a union that most actors are going to want to be a part of it whereas we have sag in the states and i mean sometimes for that you just have to do say one line in a movie and certain directors like if you're a model go like, oh well just half tartly you to get you in where i i'm the hey the industry you know it it can be superficial, but I find over here in the country, in the, in England, I find that the credentials are so much more. I think they see it more as a craft, not just like how good you look. You know, I don't want to put down LA a lot. I had an amazing time. It was, it was wonderful, but I could also see how it wouldn't necessarily be the place for everyone. And I think the nice thing about London is the diversity it has. Like you have people that do all sorts of different jobs. So as an artist, that is great. It helps ground you, I think, Mm. you know, and I also just like how London has so many kinds of art forms, like theater, radio, comedy, burlesque, drag movies, you know, all in one, one city. And for the most part, LA tends to be more like TV movies, films, I guess music. And then you would go do more theater in New York. Sorry, that was a very long-winded... Uh, <laughs> no, no, I like long-winded answers here. We're going to get into more detail, in fact, if you don't mind. Because <laughs> when you said, you know, it's, it's it's a tough city to gain traction. And I've been to LA. It's, it's stunning all the time. You have crazy traffic. Yeah. But then there, there's a stark contrast of extreme beauty and just, just wealth versus this extreme poverty. And everybody wants to make it. And maybe there's even an inherent form of narcissism within within that sort of community i'm not sure so how do you navigate that and what did you experience what that was maybe a little bit murky or iffy or not so nice as a woman i mean i gosh so okay so i remember i was like 20 and i'm probably like my my day job i'm a personal trainer so i like to think i'm like in pretty good shape and things like that so i was probably even tinier than i am now and i remember doing this commercial it was like one of Tom Cruise's PR guys, I don't know. I don't know why he was filming this commercial. Anyway, so me and my friend, he was, he was a lot older than me. And I mean, he was like, he was like a morbidly obese comedian, you know, and um, I'm not, you know, trying to at all body shape or whatever, but it's just giving you like the, the dynamic. He was a lot bigger than than myself yeah. and i'm like in my 20s whatever and tom cruise's uh like pr person is like oh lauren you need to lose 10 pounds meanwhile doesn't say anything to him and you know when you're just like i mean you're young you're in your 20s and it's stuff like that could just be soul crushing because you're just like it, because it makes no sense you know when you're like what am i being compared 
too. And I mean, that was, of course, one of like a rougher story, you know, like doing red carpets and doing all this other stuff. It is really fun. It's glamorous. I, I, and I'm, I am lucky that a bunch of the movies that I was in, the cast was lovely. Like I, you know, did one with uh, the singer Maya. She sings like, get a superstar. You know, I'm not a singer. She is. So that, and like Lady Marmalade and things like that. And we developed such a great friendship. And I'm like, even though she's so high up here, especially during, back then um it was nice you know you know you do meet a a bunch of people too that are grounded that are really in it for the craft and and you know just enjoy being performers so I never want to shed a total negative light at all on it because I did have a wonderful time I could just see how when it is a city that is just so based on entertainment and how you look like the diversity you have in London with so many different job types. I'm not saying, you know, obviously in LA people don't do anything else, but for the most part, it is a city that everyone is mainly moving there to pursue their dreams in the entertainment world. Yeah. Wow. It's, 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 it sounds also like a bubble. If you just bump into people who always have that mindset and then yeah. you know, the celebrity culture is amazing. Yeah. So Alice, you were thrown in there. How did you find it arriving there? So I, th- I think actually, LA was for me great because there were so many comedy uh, possibilities. You can literally perform every day if you want. And for from my experience from Austria, where I had maybe three gigs a year, it felt mm. amazing. <laughs> And the same in London as well. When people said they performed for a year and have 200 gigs, I think I've performed for five years to have my 200 gigs when I started. So it's just quite different from the intensity. On the other hand, I think LA is everything. You have to pay for everything. So you have to pay to do a comedy gig or you you have to bring people, but they have to pay. So they have to pay $12 for the ticket, a minimum of drink of $12, then $10 for parking. parking. So in yeah. the end, <laughs> and, and then... I get paid $5 if I bring 20 people, but then I ask my friends to come and they said, look, don't ask us to come anymore. We just pay you the $5 because we don't want to spend like $40, $50 for an evening to see you two minutes on stage. Everything in LA, you, you need to have money. I think that's the essence. If you don't have money, you can't have a car, you can't have insurance, you can't see a doctor. I went to the hospital as an hypochondriac. It's expensive because yeah. a doctor's bill, a hospital bill, suddenly my hypochondriac cost me like $400 and I was, <laughs> I was not even ill. <laughs> so it was very curing. That sounds frustrating. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess because the thing is too, sometimes, well, not sometimes with LA and you touched upon this earlier, Jess, it is, it is very trafficy because we don't really have a good uh, transport, public transport system, or it's like it, when I was there and obviously I'm not, I, it's been 10 years since I've been there. It wasn't really safe to even go on it, but it also didn't stop in that many locations because um, LA it's quite spread out as a city. <laughs> But since you're in your cars all the time, you know, most of the time, if you go out anywhere, like to dinner or whatever, you're paying for like a valet parking service because that's the only way you can get your car parked. Do you know what I mean? Because I, I, I just think with that many people, they just don't have the parking structure. You know, like, well, they don't really for it for the amount that are that are living there. But, you know, like, hey, L.A., the, I mean, it is gorgeous. The beaches are great. Loads of good restaurants. I'm um. I'm a vegan, so there's loads of amazing vegan restaurants popping up. So I always like to let everyone know about that. I have a vegan YouTube channel that I'm always 
going on about. Um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, I, people want to go. It's like, you got to go check it out, see if it's for you. I like any experience and the grass is always greener on the other side. Me being able to come over to the UK, it's so new to me. There's so many new experiences. It's very easy to travel. So it's very exciting to be in London. Whereas I'm sure someone from London will be like, wow, it's awesome being in the States, being in LA, the buzz of it, you know. Yeah, I can, I can vouch for that. I mean, I'm no longer vegan. Please forgive me, Lauren, but that was for four years and I really loved the food in, in Los Angeles. There was one restaurant, which I forgot the name of. I'll look it up and we can maybe link it in and we'll also link in your YouTube channel for any vegan lesbians yeah. out there who want to hear more about that side of Lauren's vegan life. Vegan lesbians, yes! <laughs> um, yeah, no, there was, there was one restaurant that did a fantastic vegan carbonara and I, to this day I don't know how they imitated the egg yolk on, on top of, of the... Um, oh, wow spaghetti it, it tasted like egg it looked like egg i think it would have freaked some vegans out actually totally they're like this what did they do yeah <laughs> it's like and it is the states we're all about i mean sometimes i don't know what they're putting in the food but like you know what i mean like, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a good point you know i think as, as vegans you're so, so used to the ethical argument the health argument and all that sort of stuff but you sometimes just eat stuff where you just don't know what's in it it's like no exactly. what, what is in this <laughs> what's in this egg Anyway. Yeah, I know we could go off on that one, but yeah, yeah no, sometimes you're like, mm. yeah. So for anybody wanting to check out more of, of the authentic stuff, um, I'll put a link into the description about your channel. That'd be Perfect. quite interesting. Just veganing on YouTube, but we <laughs> link in, I guess, as well. Yeah. Like, cool. So um, obviously it's called a lesbian affair, this podcast. So I'm just wondering, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Was there anything in your childhoods that would have foretold that you would become hardcore lesbians? Or was that a surprise? Did it just hit you in the night? I'm going to let Alice, you go first, because I totally know my story. Unless, uh... I'm sure Alice knows her story. Exactly. Well, I think I, I really, I mean, there was this, maybe a sign because the only lesbian we had on Austrian TV was Ellen DeGeneres with her sitcom Ellen. And I love that show for the humor because I think I, I find her really funny. And I think yeah. my humor is quite similar to hers from the uh, point of view, how she tells stories. So I could identify with that. But then somehow I was also, there was another level that I was really, that I really liked her. And then when she came out as a lesbian, I was thinking, what is that? Oh my God, what is happening here? And I recorded all her episodes from all five seasons on VHS cassettes. So it, it was it was my chivalry, and I think I've I've learned the lines by heart. So I think that could have been a sign for me a little bit that I was a lesbian. But I didn't come out until I was with Lauren in London already, and then my sister came to visit, and we were living in a, in the smallest flat ever, with <laughs> one bedroom flat, one bedroom, yeah, and a couch that you couldn't pull out, and that was just too short to li to lie on it. To lie on, right? yeah. So, but when my sister came, I thought, okay, I have to pretend that I basically that we are roommates. <laughs> so I bought extra sheets <laughs> and made the couch, but nobody could ever believe that I could sleep on the couch in this one bedroom flat. Oh my god. And, my sister looked at me and said, why didn't you tell me that you're together? And I was like, why? How did you notice? <laughs> I have the sheets to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> I made two beds today. How could you think we're so together? Did you de the flat beforehand? 
Well, so I was, I moved over here to get my master's in theater. So I already had the flat and then we kind of started dating. I mean, we did know each other for like over a year prior to, but then, but she was thinking of maybe moving to Berlin to pursue comedy or London. And because I just was here and we started dating, I was like, London, I was like, London's so much better. Like the BBC is there, da, 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 da. I'm here. So then I had, I had the flat. And so she just ended up moving in Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As a new hall, basically. I mean, yeah. I brought the moving van on the first date. Yes. <laughs> and I came with all my stuff. Very, very lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh, again another hardcore lesbian thing to do. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're ticking a lot of boxes here, guys. <laughs> we, 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 we're really going for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so for me, my brother. Um, my brother beat me to it. So he's like 17 months younger than myself. So he came out when he was in high school and I kind of didn't know, but when I look back on it, there's one specific story that should have, we'll start off with the name Jillian Anderson. Now I'm sure a lot of people listening, <laughs> I'm not the only one here who thinks she's gorgeous. So I, I went to this all girls school and cause I lived a little bit further from where the school was. I like, there was this van service that would come pick us up instead of the bus. But sometimes, most of the time we'd get to school, like, you know, maybe a, a, a bit earlier. So Lauren would sneak down, not sneak down. I'd go to the computer lab and literally print off every Jillian Anderson thing. I could see every picture, every article she did. Cause obviously she was doing the X-Files at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, and then I would bring it home and hide it in like my secret backpack. Like, so at the time I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what, these feelings were because I was like, oh, I think she's just so gorgeous. Like I wrote to her, I got like a sign. Who knows if she signed it really or not? But um, one of her people might have signed it. Sent it to me. Like I was obsessed, and so I remember telling my brother this. And this is after I came out, and he's like, "She was your first girl crush," and I was like, "Well, clearly she was." So I kind of I should have known. And I think even like in high school, I'm like, "Oh, I wouldn't mind like kissing some of my friends," <laughs> like, but I never did because I was like, "What are these feelings?" You know, I'm like, "What is this?" And then when, once I was at Berkeley, I was on the lacrosse team, and um, anyway, me. It always starts in lacrosse teams or. Sports it teams. always starts on a team, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look for Oz. So yeah, and then kind of from then on, it was you know we 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 opened the floodgates. <laughs> Probably That's, that was the best choice of words, but there you go. <laughs> it was the best choice of words. I think um, <laughs> I, I have a lot in common with you, but there's a question underneath that. The first thing is what Alice was saying about recording tapes over tapes over tapes. I loved Ellen DeGeneres way before I knew I was gay. And I had this weird gravitation towards gay people already before I've, I realized I was gay. So Ellen DeGeneres was one of them. Um, Dusty Springfield, as podcast listeners will know, was one of them. But um, I also did the same for <laughs> Terry Hatcher and uh, Lois and Clark. Oh, me too. Adventures of, uh, Superman, Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Lewis Clark. Yeah. I, I, blah. See, I'm already losing it. <laughs> and it, it was so meticulous. And maybe that's a germ- Germanic thing. I recorded every episode on VHS as well. And I could, after a while, tell which episode it was just by the outfit Terry Hatcher was wearing. <laughs> wow. I love yeah, this. Well, funny story. I was actually, I, I was filming something. And um, I think because when I first moved to LA in, in between um, university and like the summers, you know, in between university, I would go down and do extra work. And I think I did extra work because I, I definitely, like she was there, Terry Thatcher. And I was like an extra like, walking behind her. No, you yeah. can't tell me that story like that. Hang on. <laughs> what was it? Yeah. Hot. I'm ready. 
<laughs> You're right. We're, we're heading over to LA. We're going to find Mary. I'll stay over here and look for Jillian because I do know she lives in England. So there you it, The plot thickens. We know why you're here now. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. The yeah. truth is actually coming out. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering when Alice was saying, oh, I liked Ellen DeGeneres. Is it a fancying somebody thing or was it more of a role model thing? Because you did end up in comedy, right? I, I think maybe also because it is true, the role model thing. I think that's a good point because, you know, when somebody kisses another woman on TV and you've never really seen that and you just want to do that too. <laughs> and it's just really nice to have something that you identify with to see that. I think you automatically love that. Yeah. I think if you have only gay TV then it's easier to say, oh, I don't like that. I don't like this. But if it's just one TV series that you have, then you immediately love everything what happens there. Yeah. But yeah, it's just one source for me when I was a teenager. Oh, and me, it was a crush. I will definitely not lie. It was a crush on Gillian Anderson. (laughs) I mean, you know, if Ellen calls me tomorrow and asks me out for a date... I would not say no. I, I would say yes as well because I think she's hilarious and I do I do like her. Mm. I mean, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. <laughs> Let's hope she's Ellen, listening. if you're listening, Alice, Alice Frick. <clears throat> yeah. And Julian, if you're listening, Lauren Carl, boom. And Cher as well. I love Cher. I mean, Cher can never be too old for me. I'll take her whenever. No. whenever well, she... I, I, I love Cher. I almost think she's a vampire. I don't think she's aged at all. She made sure she hasn't. She She's done a lot of work to make sure she hasn't, but but it's, it's worth it. She's done a great job. Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> doesn't need to turn back time. Not with her looks. So there you go. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'll, I'll go for Terry Hatcher. Yeah, well, there you go. There we go. She's listening. Oh, she's listening. <laughs> if she's listening, why are you listening? <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, was, I was just just thinking about how comedy works. And one thing that I've always wondered about is why there are so many queer or lesbian artists in comedy. Is it, is it why, what, what's sort of a challenge for, for female artists that, that maybe isn't there for men because because it is a different distribution if you look at talent maybe say with, with acting as well um i don't necessarily think there are so many lesbian comedians because i think it's quite it's a lot of female comedians but they are not seen mm-hmm. so maybe maybe at a certain level you have more lesbians but i think they do that to fill in the quota so for example at the moment um they have to have diverse TV. So they have a white straight man and then they can, they have to have a person of color. They have to have a gay person and they have to have a woman. And sometimes it's great if there is, if they all are one person and then they can keep their straight man. So that's what I've experienced. So that's my theory, because if you look at the circle, there's enough of everything. There is enough of all kinds of funny women and not necessarily only gay uh, women or lesbians are the funniest they, they're all funny and they're all out there yeah no, no just to clarify I didn't want to make an artificial hierarchy out of it I just thought back maybe to the 90s and early 2000s and whoever I could list in my head who was regarded as successful or good yeah. would have been a queer or lesbian so Margaret Cho Wanda Sykes we've got Lynette yeah. now Hannah Gatsby right then Ellen DeGeneres yeah I, I think you're absolutely right I do think there are quite a lot of famous lesbian comedians out there 
but I think it's more that the higher level, the producers want to tick boxes. I mean, which is great because I'm a lesbian, so please tick the box with me. <laughs> but, okay. But yeah, but I think it's a, it's a lot of, of women in general. That's why I started Laughing Labia, just to show how many funny women there are there, all kinds of ages, all kinds of nationalities. There are all kinds of uh, backgrounds, ethnicities. Yeah. It's it's great. I mean, you have so many different stories out there than just the male comedy sets that you see in most of the comedy clubs. Yeah, and maybe sometimes it's more about who you are, not what you are. Yeah. It would be really nice if, if we just also saw humor as an, a thing that everybody kind of walks around with and, and potential that, that comes with it. It would be interesting well, to see. That's why I think it's good to have like the, the, like, you know, the diversity, the different backgrounds and the cat, because they tell different stories, yeah. I think. And especially, you know, like, I mean, you know, we can't deny that obviously a lot of things have been told through a patriarchal eye, you know, even when um, you look at women's history, queer history, lesbian history, it is just not written. Like when you're trying to look at it years past, especially lesbian history, I wrote something along the lines of it in uh, lesbian identity for my dissertation for my master's. And and you're just like, it, it's just not written because for a while history was written by men. Right. And so we're so used to hearing, and I'm not saying men don't have different stories. So please do not get me wrong. And I think especially coming from different backgrounds, they will, but I'm like, what we're so used to for a while that we have seen, like, especially on TV, it's like the white straight male. And I don't want to pick on them at all because you know, a lot, Hey, if they're going to be open-minded and wonderful and considerate, great. But if they're going to be a Harvey Weinstein about certain things, it's like, there's no place for you, you know, but unfortunately we're used to seeing a lot from that gaze. You know, even if you go and you look at a magazine stand for the most part, it's like 85% women or pictures of them. And then like, you'll see 15% men. So it's like, even as women, we're, we're developing this gaze against either ourselves or other women or but I, I think a lot of the history and the stories have not always been based from a female perspective or you know the gay perspective you know but we're starting to see that you know come to the surface a bit more which is needed because that when you look at how the world is it is not black and white I think now we're trying to get better by getting all these stories out there because they're all valid and they all are meant to be heard because that is how we are going to then break down stereotypes and all the hatred and the bullying going on because no one fits into these, you know, dual boxes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's life is full of nuance and I think we're losing a lot of nuance as well at the moment from, from what I see. People don't necessarily engage with it. So what you're saying is, is very interesting. And I'm also wondering, um, yeah. how do you, for example in your performances and, and question goes for Alice as well. Like how do you incorporate your individual lens and your story based on that? So I think, um, I have to admit, I think maybe from LA, maybe from different things, it's like body image has been at points an issue for myself. And I think when I was in LA, when you're just seeing everyone with perfect bodies or boob jobs or whatever, and Hey, I mean, if you get a boob job, it makes you feel better. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying when, when it, when it's in your face all the time, like how you look, how you look, or that at least was part of my experience there. So then I got into burlesque because 
you see all different body types on stage. You see, you know, so much diversity with it. And also in the drag kings as well. It's not a one size fits all kind of thing. You know, curviness is, is beautiful. It is, you know, and it's not everyone's stick skinny. I like, um, I also just think there's a lot of diversity in the acts because you could bring a lot of you to it. Like some of the kings on the drag king scene, like some of them come up with, you know, um, such moving acts about uh, like their sexuality, who they are, um, trans stories, all like so many different, you know, I, I kind of take a lot of the comedical approach because I do magic. I like to think like to give people the gift of magic, to be able to dream, to think that there's other possibilities out there um, is a nice thing to be able to give, give to people or for them to at least be able to come and switch mm-hmm. off to. But um, I'd say the, the reason that I yeah got into burlesque because I was like, I think it features healthy body images and also women, we are sexual beings. Like there's no reason we should be shamed for it. If I want to get on stage and get my tits out, you know what I mean? I should be able to, and I'm not a slut for doing it. I'm not, we are sexual beings. Like guys are always trying to swing their junk around, you know, and, it, and, and I'm not what shouldn't be acceptable, but you know what I mean? And I'm like, women should be able to express that in an environment that we feel safe and comfortable. And when it's our choice to do yeah. it. So it sounds like for you, it's it's reclaiming your own agency around your body, and I think yeah. that's very important because um, I think it's it's beyond just us seeing um, a certain type of woman in a magazine. I think there there's is a deeper story to that that we maybe don't talk about sometimes. I mean, it's it's clear that most pictures are photoshopped. Even the stuff on Instagram, if you look at the Kardashians, is photoshopped, and um, that's unrealistic yes. to start off with. But then also the things that we're doing, yeah. I, I'm not sure if you've ever read it. There's a story out there. It's, it's called The People of Nakirema. <laughs> it's this sort of thing of when if aliens came, would, were to come down to Earth now and, and see us as a civilization, what would they observe and oh. anthropologically scrutinize? And it's this idea of stuffing silicon into your bodies and flat ironing your hair yeah. and doing all sorts of things that are actually really coming at a sacrifice where you just think, gosh, that sounds painful and tormenting. Um, not that it's yeah. wrong if it brings you psychological joy or equilibrium do it exactly. um but if you're almost doing it because you feel pressured into it and you're like that's not me but i'm fitting into a box and then i know a lot of people that are like no i really you know that is part of them but i think also the thing is it's the misrepresentation of women but also i'm sure men as well they probably and it, and i think social media is a great thing but like you said when you're able to just edit all this stuff out you're like okay you're just seeing the perfection and people struggle with that because no it no one is going to can strive to that level but We're thinking that's the norm. No, nobody looks like that. Everybody needs to do something and come to a decision within themselves. I mean, I've, I've had that, certainly. I, I grew up being bullied for how I looked because I was very tomboyish, very gay already. And um, it, it took me a long time to to overcome that physical self, self-alienation with my body and to wear dresses and just be comfortable and doing what yeah. I do. And I mean, the aliens would have a go at me as well because I've had laser hair removal and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Hey, but it's made me happy. So. Yeah. Well, that's it. And that's, that is it. You know what I yeah. mean? Sometimes it's like, as long as you're doing it for you. Exactly. Yeah. So it's amazing what you're doing with your burlesque work. And that's exactly what I mean when I said, how does your story yeah. kind of translate and rewrite history in that sense and what you're doing? Alice, what about you? Yeah. So I, I personally think I have a very strong point of view for that because I think the the question always in comedy is can i say that joke or not and there is a big netflix discussion now with david chappelle 
um, about the trans community. And I think the que- and there is also the other thing about rape jokes. Yeah. Are you allowed to do rape jokes? Mm. If they're funny, can you do them? Do you go for the punchline? But I think we as performers, we have a responsibility because mm-hmm. if I have a mic and if I have even 50 people in the audience, then, you know, I, I send something out. Is it really, am I that lazy that I just go for the twist for a rape joke? Because I know I always feel with that. I'm like, because rape is not like, I I think there's some things it's hard to make funny. I mean, I, I've had, there's one woman who does it, like it's how she story tells and flips it. But there are some, some like maybe more untalented, shall we say comedians are like, if it's coming out of a man's mouth, I'm like, if that's how you're thinking of it, it's not funny because violence, uh, like that situation messes so much with women and destroys people's lives. So I don't see how you can find that funny. And it's, it's also, I think it's also cheap because the thing is, when you do a lot of comedy, you know, a joke works with set a punch mm. and the punch is a twist. So basically, and that's the thing with comedy. If you see a lot of comedians, I see comedians and I can finish the joke because yeah. the obvious is there. So if I look for a twist, I see the obvious because I've, I'm constantly thinking about how do I make a joke out of this? And I think good comedians are original. So good comedians, they surprise everyone. So I was like, what? I didn't think about that. And I think that's, that's, uh, that makes a good comedian. Not if you just attack people and if you just go for, for a punchline, that's just a cheap, that's just a cheap joke. And you, in my eyes, haven't done your job properly. Mm-hmm. And I personally, what I'm, because I'm quite passionate about uh, feminism. So what, yes. what I also know, it's very difficult to communicate uh, feminist topics and to not attack men because, you know, I also don't want to attack men. I, there are a lot of men in my life who I love. So yeah. and not all men are bad. But the question is, how can you how can you do that? And I'm I'm currently working on a solo show where I and, and my character is I'm come across as the naive Austrian from the Alps who misunderstands a lot of things. So that's quite nice to use that mm. and play with that to to say certain topics for example i'm just i just did a set about um the the safety apps in london there it's now it came in the newspapers because of women murderers so how do we feel safe as a woman going out and there are these safety apps but these safety apps, you know, you have to, for one app, you have to scream. Then the question is, does the scream even recognize female voices? Because normally all the mm. computers are made on men voices. Then the other app, you have to text back, you know, then mm. you have to be tracked. You have to put your friends in. And I'm thinking, why do we have to do it? Why don't men have to do it? Why don't men have to text every 15 minutes if they haven't done something bad? Why do I have to text everything yeah. that I'm okay? I have a feeling they might not know if what they were doing is bad or not. Sure. <laughs> but, but it's just like, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. you know, we are so, we live in a world where everything is, even even the, the cell phones, they are not made for women's hands. I mean, now they start to do smaller, make smaller phones, but in general, the big phone doesn't fit in my hand. I can't text with one hand and I can't put it in my pocket because my jeans pocket are not big enough to put the phone yeah. in. And the phone is too big that it falls out. So it's not made for, for women. 
the same is with belts, seat belts for the car. Yeah. They're made for men. So when women have an accident, they are more likely to die or to be injured because the seat belt, they haven't measured breasts in them. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's so much to Oh, you, you got about. Alice on this. She, and, she might roll. <laughs> but of course, you don't. You don't want to you don't want to go on and say this is wrong and this is wrong and this is awful. So my I see my responsibility as a comedian to take these topics that upset me and try to make a twist, make a joke that men laugh about it as well and they say oh my god this is ridiculous why do we do that? Mm. So that's my my plan for my next solo show to really tackle these topics and use my voice for that. Gosh, you got me thinking there, and I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be up for, for a little discussion, actually, for a section. I mean, this is a podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> um, I totally love the idea of of taking these these topics that mean a lot to you and, and making them part of your comedy lens. And and I also like that you're saying, I don't want to be a misandrist and just yeah. do man-hating. Because you, you're saying that that's kind of cheap in that sense, because that, that would be the same sort of approach to uh, rape jokes, yeah. which are cheap, cheap laughs. Um but then I find myself, and this is my personal lens now, um, and I I've sometimes have anxiety expressing that, that obviously I find rape jokes, for example, absolutely disgusting and revolting. Like I find myself sitting in audiences sometimes when that happens, um, and I've worked in very male-dominated industries, I'm just recoiling as a woman. And I think men are not necessarily aware of what that does to women when they, for example, even also watch rape scenes on television and other stuff, because you identify with sort of your gender on screen, let's just say yeah. it that way. Um, but then the one thing that I've kind of like, and this is maybe the part of me that, that is, you know, German and has family that was in communist time and had issues with communism and authoritarianism and freedom of speech. And also parts of family who had issues with freedom of speech during Hitler's times. That part of me has sort of cultivated a view of freedom of speech. I, I might not agree with what you say, but I will defend your right to say it. <laughs> because I've also come to believe that half the times these jokes or these pieces of content grow old pretty fast and don't necessarily hold up the merit unless there is something to it. So, so that's sort of always my thing when I'm just sort of sitting there thinking, well, you can say what you want. It doesn't necessarily, to me, um, equate an act of violence. I have a different definition for that, but it's still shit. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I want to be able to say what I want to So Go on, say it. Don't know if that makes sense. And and the problem is, if you hear comedians do rape jokes or do misogynistic jokes, the problem is because they use the element of surprise, the audience laughs. And you sit in a show with two hundred people in the audience, and they laugh. And and I think, I think mm. that's not okay. You know, I think yeah. it's very tricky. So I I do think a lot of comedians forget that they have a responsibility. And I'm all about the freedom of speech. And I'm I'm having my set is quite dark at times as well. So I, and I, I'm more dark when I'm in Austria, when I do comedy in German, because Austria is just really dark humor. And I do basement jokes and, you know, people could say, why do you do basement jokes? That's not nice. And that's, so I, I totally, I'm not saying I'm completely mm. being, because that's, it's comedy after all. And I yeah. think there are yeah. people out there who, who are speakers and who, who lead, I don't know, um, movements. And of course, there it has a time and space. And for comedy, it sometimes doesn't. So in comedy, you need to have other tools to communicate these topics. But I think my my next step in comedy, what I would love to do is to really have a 
really funny, solid solo show with feminist topics that people don't even realize, oh, it's a feminist show. But just mm, to you get them by surprise too. Yeah, just to <laughs> just to tackle these things and just to show in what world we live. Because when you get aware of how our world looks like, then it's and the voice activation. It's true. A lot of voice activations are only tested with men voices. So when women use the navigation system and say something, it's much more difficult for them. And it's just so all the science, all the products are based on the standard male person i think there is also yeah. something with uh, that it's quite white based because i think yeah things. there was a really cool netflix documentary i watched um and, and this woman was exploring that as part of like one of her thesis and it's just and it's like white men basically yeah. that to identify facial recognition so like women women of color men of color as well like they don't get recognized nearly as much as like the white man it was like 95 percent of what what and then the statistics just went lower and lower as you kind of went well you could expand all of that into medicine as well which is ironic because the average person if, if we were going to just look for the average person in the world meaning the person that there is the most of it would be asian male yeah yeah. But um, yeah, no, that's a lot to think about. Wow. In terms of also, basically you were saying you're, you're working on this feminist slant in, in your next show. Now, we were going to talk about the laughing lady, but that's not the one you're talking about. Is it a new thing that you're working on or is that? So basically Laughing Labour is the mixture I have. It's a mixed comedy show with an all-female lineup and it's a monthly event. Lauren actually came up with the name. <laughs> we, we well done. <laughs> we started the night together when we were first, first together. So <laughs> we, we started it together and it has been on for about nine years now, I think. And now yeah. it's at the Phoenix Arts Club in the West End venue. So it's really, it has really grown. It, has it grown. normally sells out, which is fantastic. So I'm very, very pleased with how it was also during the pandemic i did weekly shows for a for a lesbian meetup group um just to keep the spirits up it was a free show with like one or two comedians just to keep people laugh through That's the like lockdown frontline entertainment yeah yeah, yeah. frontline from zoom entertainment. But, ideally, <laughs> but ideally now it's great that the audience is not just lesbian but also quite mixed because i think lesbians are a superb support system and they watch the show but i think they've the mainstream has to watch it as well because that yeah. they have to see that women are funny too, you know. So it's quite nice that it has become bigger. So that's the mixture laughing labor. And then I have a solo show, my last solo show that I recorded in February. It's or in March. It's called A Freaking Crazy Year. And that's out now on Vimeo On Demand. So that was recorded. And the next solo show that I'm working on currently. So I have not finished writing it i have to yeah. bits of it but that hopefully comes out next year wow it's gonna be interesting to see i'm i'm just struck with how busy you are because the last time we talked you also were working on writing a was it an anti-self-help book <laughs> yes the anti-self-help book it's it's done now i'm just needing to i've finished the proofreading i just now need to i will self-publish it because the publishers wanted me to have something published first before I publish with them. So I need to publish. So it's like this catch 22. It's like, yeah. oh, it's like, okay, well then where am I going to get that published from? Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, but I will do it. I'm quite happy actually to do it myself because it will be hundred percent of what I wanted it to be. I don't have to compromise with someone 
but yeah, I need to do more work in marketing and self-publishing and how to do it. So that's that's holding me back a bit, but I hope it will come out in December. And it's just called the anti-self-help book. So it's quite, Fantastic. <laughs> quite straightforward. So, so I mean, I mean, we know what it's called, but I'm, I'm also wondering if you can just tell the story of how you got there. Because I do remember having a conversation with you about self-help books. Yeah, so I, it came... A, about when I had a breakup and then I read a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of self-help books. Every self-help book available I read. And then I was thinking, it's great because they, they are helpful. But as soon as you finish the last page, they stop working. So you need another <laughs> one. It's it's a, a drug. You get addictive. It's a pyramid scheme. And I was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's all the self-help books. It's, I was on them 24-7. And then I was so embarrassed because I kept buying them. And I thought I have to buy them with like birthday cards or something that people don't think it's for me. <laughs> so I bought like a Christmas card, a birthday card, some other cards that they think I just buy them for other people because I had literally every book that's on the market. And then I thought, actually, I will write an anti-self-help book. So I will just go through every advice they give you, every piece of advice and just explore it and write why it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very Austrian and methodical, actually. Yeah, No, that didn't work. I even have footnotes. I'm very academic in this book. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Lauren, did you end up getting self-help books from her as well? Or were you sort of roped into that? Luckily, I, I, I steer uh, clear of, uh, of that one. But um, yeah, no, luckily I didn't get uh, roped into hardcore with that. Okay. But she also at the time was working on another project um, called What the Frick, which is the web series. Yes. Um, I'm also in it. So I, I kind of took more to that. I'm like, oh, are you going to put her, <laughs> her self-help books and I'm going to just focus on some on-camera <laughs> some on-camera work with that. But that's another, it's on, it's on YouTube, isn't it, Alice? Yeah. The first season so. is out on YouTube and yeah, check it out. plays the crazy American flatmate. I know that, yeah. that one falls very far from the tree, doesn't it? <laughs> Lauren, what, what's it like to to work with your friend slash ex on a YouTube series? Yeah. Like, what was it like to be directed by her? Well, I think I think the good thing is we work really well together, and I and I do think she took some stories that kind of you, you know you make it a little bit more comedical, but I think she drew drew out parts of my character, extended them, you know, <laughs> as she <you> was, <laughs> or maybe not. I don't know. No, but and and so I think we've worked together for years for like 10 years. Like I said, per, for a while we used to both produce laughing labia. Now she does more of that. I do more cabaret stuff, which Alice also works on. I created a show called create your cabaret, which is like audience immersion. So also we just had our first one next one's December 18th, but Alice is the compare for that. So we've just worked a lot on projects. I think we're really comfortable with each other. She is also my camera woman for my vegan YouTube channel, just <laughs> veganing. So we actually have a lot of things going. And I think we always feel like we can be quite open and honest with each other. Like I'll read some stuff of her. She'll go over some stuff of mine. And I do value her opinion from her background of where she's come from. And I guess maybe she values mine sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, so I think from our backgrounds and where we've worked, and I, yeah. I think it does make for a good combo. And, you know, we trust each other. And, you know, she's like family to me. So, you know, I, I think we trust each other. We also know 
how to like not push buttons too hard or be compassionate and sensitive with issues, but also get the point across as well, you know. And I think for the sitcom, we probably, we laughed quite a lot because I think Lauren... <laughs> did take me seriously when I directed, but sometimes she was just laughing when I said, look at me, look at the camera, <laughs> turn around, turn over. I confused everything. <laughs> so it was quite funny, actually. And then she directed quite a lot as well, where she said, okay, Alice, let me do it. Because I sometimes, because the set was just really small. We were only allowed yeah. to have six people there with the cast members. With COVID. And with COVID. And also there was no budget. So I basically did camera. I had somebody for sound, but I had to press the camera record button myself. Yeah. I had to, with a monitor, try to get the framing yeah. right. So sometimes I forgot to press record and these things, but it was, it was quite funny because I think it was a relaxed atmosphere. And yeah, yeah. sometimes Lauren took over and said, okay, you do. Because well, I, the thing is, I also get it like coming from an acting background. And sometimes it's like having that person behind to be like, is this coming across how it's written in the script and the intentions, right? Yeah. And obviously you can't do that if you're... Well, she you should be in front of the camera, but trying to direct it. I'm like, you know, it might be nice to have someone direct you um, just to make sure everything's coming. We're getting the shots we need, you know, because Alice had so much to think about, obviously, with like producing and directing it. Also being like the caterer as well, like providing food and all this stuff on set. So, you know, I, it is nice to have an extra set of eyes or especially times when we would have extras on set because you want to look and see what are the extras doing? Like, are they focused in the moment because they are going to be on camera but I, not everyone kind of knows like okay we're rolling and that means it's on you so I would also try to keep an eye on them and give them some direction as well if need be as well as being able to like help Alice when she was uh, in front of the camera just because I always think it's nice to have an extra set of eyes just to make sure we're kind of capturing all the shots she wants and that it's you know continuity is a big thing isn't it in in movies and also character continuity you know so just making sure everything is really coming across in a nice fluid way i think so just to clarify for, for listeners continuity is a bit of a gray word for for people who don't work in the film industry it would mean what would it entail it would be like somebody making sure that you're wearing the same dress that you're wearing the same stuff that everything is in the same place because scenes are recorded on different days in a different order exactly so it is that's why you have a script supervisor script supervisors are amazing because they literally will be like okay she picked that up with her right hand because you do long shots you do close shots you do medium shots so sometimes you're redoing the same thing but let's say you went and had a bathroom break or had lunch like okay Am I picking this up at the right time? Did I have it in my right or left hand? So all of those things, because you shoot out of yeah. sequence a lot of times. So a lot of those things are clearly important to get right. It's the, the thing when you see a, car, a blue car getting into a tunnel and then a red car coming out, then there was yes. really a continuity mistake. So or a Starbucks think, cup and, and a Game yeah. of Thrones episode. Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. That's Clearly someone left that there at the coffee break. <laughs> we we actually have some making off as well on YouTube. That could be quite fun to watch if you're interested yeah. in these things. We we had quite... The making of was quite funny. <laughs> things, yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, um, one thing that I didn't know was, for example, if you have a lot of extras, for example, a dance scene, like I'm thinking of titanic ballroom scenes or whatever everybody is dancing silently particularly if there's yeah. a dialogue happening at that time so everybody sort of like dancing to music that's added yeah. afterwards it's 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 yeah. excruciating to think that everybody has to dance on without music times that i've done like because my first movie cut in the mustard i played um i had a dance scene with one of the guys i was seeing and they're like okay we're gonna play the music 
everyone dance. We're going to turn it off. They'll do their dialogue. But so everyone is, I mean, they'll put it back in, obviously, in like ADR, which is, you know, obviously in the studio after filming. But it is quite awkward, like not dancing to music and having to. Yeah. Imagine being sober, having to dance and having no music. <laughs> There you go. I mean, Acting is hard work, even for extras, I can say. Yes. <laughs> so Lauren, I'm, I'm really inspired by both of you, actually, Alice and Lauren together as, as, as a team, how you're working, how you're reconciling this, how much you do on your own as well. This is a real piece of love in terms of just, just the hours you put into things and how many projects you have. So you mentioned Create Your Cabaret. Create Your Cabaret, yes. It's a bi-monthly show at this really queer space in Hackney called Folklore. It's, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's like being on a mushroom trip when you walk inside. <laughs> There's a lot to look at. It's great. Nice, just very welcoming venue. And we'll have different performers on every month. And so normally how I structure it is in the first half, you get to see their act. So you kind of get a chance to know the performers. Then in the second half the audience will get to choose for each performer, like between three songs, they'll choose the performer will start, you know, moving, dancing, whatever. And then we'll stop three or four times throughout it, giving them, giving the audience two choices to choose between, therefore creating a new cabaret act basically with the performer. So I think it's fun because it just really gets the audience involved because like, well, they are involved, you know? So, and I just think after being cooped up, after being in lockdown, people just want to go have a good time. They do want to interact these days. And uh, it's kind of just like a fun little, you know, we, we enjoyed it. It went well. So we were happy. Yeah, yeah. What sort of stuff that people pick? I mean, we've, we've obviously people listening from the UK, check it out. We'll send the details through in the episode description but for people from abroad just to kind of envisage what the vibe is like like um what what do audience members choose so they get for example they can choose a different music every burlesque or drag act comes with music normally yeah. and then in the second half we say okay we have three different tracks which track should we perform this now to And then they choose. And then after a while, we stop again and we say, okay, now we had one clown actually on stage. And then the, the task was either this clown dances with a chair as a pole or with me as a pole. And then obviously they chose Alice. <laughs> and then she had to uh, incorporate a pole dance in her act. And I was the pole. So, wow. and then we or like, again. or like mine was like, do you want her because I'm comfortable doing a strip tease? Not every burlesque performer has to do them or every cabaret performer. Yeah. It's a matter of choice, but I'm comfortable with it. And I wrote the show. So I knew what, what options we gave the audience. So it's like, do you want Louis Bonditti to strip to the chicken dance or the Macarena? Like, so, you know, it just makes it fun. It makes it goofy. Yeah. It's it's kind of just like a new concept that and and I think the acts they all seem to have a great time as well because it's nice to just be able to have fun on stage and like even not really have to think just go with mm. kind of what the audience says and just roll with it there's no one you know that's amazing so it's it's like a video game sort of concept in a sense like some video games where you say okay now what do you want to do go down this yes. road or down that road that's cool. And I guess it would incorporate improvisation for you too. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's just kind of fun for everyone, keeps everyone engaged. So, so what would I have to do if I wanted to be good at improv? What are some rules of improv? Well, I think, I think there are, for me, I think there are two main rules. The one is the yes end rule. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. 
Yeah. So every if somebody gives you an offer, you accept it and build on it. Instead of saying when I say hello, mama, then you say like I'm not your mama. I'm uh, <laughs> or yeah. hi, dad. You don't block it by saying yeah. you say yes and you say hello, child. Yeah. Okay. And the second one, I think it's the most difficult one, is that it's it is a team game, and I think it is the focus should be on the story and not on oneself. Yeah. Although it's really difficult because when you do improv and you have an idea, you think like, ah, that's an idea, that's great. And you just jump in or you you build up an idea while the scene is happening already and then you stop listening. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, if you do stand up, it's all about yourself. So it's it's good because you can shine and you can put yourself out. But in improv, it really should be about everyone. And I think sometimes improv tends to be the loudest is is the one who gets the most of stage time. And that should not be it. So actually, if you are a good team, you know who has played in your group and who hasn't, and you make sure everyone has, and then you just do it for the story and not for showcasting yourself. That's interesting. And, and I think like you you touched upon it um, just from when I've done some stuff or even just doing a night like this. And I, this is going to sound like way easier said than done, but I think... You know, a lot of times we have egos, let's be honest. You know what I mean? And I think we're constantly, we're writing our own stories in our heads. They might not be truth or not. You know, we're not listening because we're so busy with what's going on in here. And I'm like, when you are improv and you need to listen and you truly need to be in the moment and you have to be willing to change. If someone then makes a sentence that if you were thinking it up, is not going to go on. You don't just steamroll ahead, which is what Alice was saying, like with the yes and you don't just try to push your point across. It's like, you have to be open to what other people give you. Mm -hmm. And as easy as that is, I think a lot of times in life, like we like to walk through with our, our stories or our agendas we want to push. And sometimes it's like in doing that, we're not actually listening and maybe receiving signs from other people or just being able to um, like fluid's not the right word because it is good to have your sense of self, but it's like when you're doing something like improv, you are bringing another character in. But the main thing is it isn't, it's a team game and um, there's now I in team. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there's an eye yeah. in improv. But anyway, you know, the main thing is listening and being able to adapt. Yeah. So it's an openness and flexibility that you're gunning for. Hmm. And I think it's also to make your others make the others look good. So yeah. if somebody does something and you see somebody dying on stage and it really doesn't go well, then it's always good to just stand next to this person and repeat that thing and or just yeah. do even something that is worse. Because that your partner looks good. So, yeah. So, I think these are so make your partner look good, uh, play as a team, and just do the yes and thing. I think that and listening, yeah, these are these would be, but you yeah. know, it's always hard. It's good in theory, but then of course, when you play as a team, you then know the strength of the people and you know, yes. oh, this person is really good at with this. So, it's, I think in the beginning, you just have to test out who can do what and just try to be as open as possible. And then, yeah. Not just be in German. We have a, a saying. Uh, it's called Rampensau. That means uh, <laughs> that means being a stage pig. And a stage pig is somebody who just goes on stage and takes the spotlight and just ignores everyone else. So don't be a stage pig in improv. That's don't be a Rampensau. Rampensau. It's it's really funny, obviously, having Germanic background myself. I, I just always am struck by how many pig words there are in German. It's like, 
what is the saying? I can't even say it. Everything has an end apart from sausages, which have two ends. Mm. <laughs> and that's an actual idiom that means something in German. It doesn't translate well into English. <laughs> very meaningful, yeah. Yeah, it is very deep. Trust yeah. me, Lauren. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Um, Double-ended but, sausages. Well, or even in football, you say, oh, now it's all about the sausage. So when things get really sort of dicey and you're just sitting at the edge of your seat and you're like, oh my God, it's all about the sausage. I think if I heard it was all about the sausage, I might be thinking something different. Yeah, me too, just now. That's but a little <laughs> bit too heteronormative for me. Sorry, yeah. Lauren. <laughs> but, but actually, Alice, now that we've kind of come out about our German language history there a little bit more. Um, actually, I'm talking about myself now that I have talked more about German language history. <laughs> How do you how do you find translating German jokes into English? Because I just pretty much try to prove how difficult that is, meaning it doesn't work. <laughs> well, I think just translating German into English is it's a joke itself. Because I I realized the other week you have something. How do you say in English? Maybe sugar honey or something like a nice word if you like somebody. <coughs> Uh, in in German, we would say Zuckerschnecke. And if you translate that into English, it means sugar slug. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, because I, I did take a few German classes, like, because I was just trying to learn, like, you know. When, you're trying to impress Alice once upon yeah. a time. And sometimes you're just like, it doesn't, it's, like, it's not like a nice word. Like, if you call me a, a sugar slug, I'd be like, like, mm. like you know what I mean? Like, you are my little sugar slug. Mm. <laughs> oh, sexy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like if I use, I called my girlfriend, I'm like, hi, it's a sugar slug. And she'd be like, I'll try it. I'll try it. I'll see how that one goes. I mean, even when you when you try to be sexy to somebody and say like, mm, I want to take your bra off, then in, in German you say, I want to take off your breast holder. Because bra is <laughs> breast holder. It's really, it's really not... It's precise, but not sexy. Yeah, and, yes. and and sex in German means Geschlechtsverkehr. And if you translate that back, it means gender traffic. It's it's just not, it's very difficult. So I think there's Germans, a lot of gender trafficking going on in Germany. I'm sure. yeah. <laughs> All kinds of. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, so, so how did that go for you, Lauren, when you started learning German? Was it like a... Well, I think I probably did it for like a few months. I definitely was able to pick some stuff up, but it's like, I speak Spanish and I just think it's interesting because the verb is always like at the end of the, of a German yeah. sentence. Like the sentence structure is quite different from like Spanish or English in some ways. There's a lot of words that are similar, like der Hund, like hound, well, dog, what well, means dog, but like, I don't know. So yeah. stuff. But I think for me, I found like sentence structure just a little bit difficult, you know? I, I had to just like kind of rework how I was thinking things. I mean, talk about listening. I'm like, listen to the total end of the sentence just to really get <laughs> them. You have to listen. If you if you walk the dog or eat the dog, you have to finish the sentence before yeah. you know the verb. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> but I'm just wondering if we can extend that question that I asked. I mean, you also came from the States to the UK and you already sort of said that there is maybe cultural differences in how jokes land or are told what what have you picked up on that that sort of is a challenge i guess it's sometimes just small things like i'm going to say this next one maybe it's more of a european thing in the states no one t and i'm pointing at alice with this one no one takes their shoes off in the states 
everyone here, like you walk into a house, it's like, take the shoes off. And I, Alice was very adamant about this one. Um, and I'm maybe not everyone here thinks that, but I do find, see that more than like in the States, people just like traipse around, I guess. Um, I don't know if these are the best. These are very like, But I have to say something. Yeah, yeah. I have to say an observation from the States because in the States, you leave your house, you get into your car, you drive to the location and then you get out of the car. So the shoes are literally just in the house and in the car. But I think, well... Let's assume nobody goes shopping in the States, but in the in in the UK or in Austria, people take the tube, people go on grass, people step into dog shit. You know, there, there is so much more life on Fox shoes. Poo. And then these shoes are on my bathroom carpet. Where oh, th this was always a thing. So I'm like, guess what I'm doing? I'm stomping around with my <laughs> dog shit on them on your carpet. Like, she's like, no. But I wash my feet and then I stand on my carpet and then it's it's full of dirty outside shoe things. You know? <laughs> it's very it's very dangerous for the feet. <laughs> this was a very this was a very tough, touchy issue, Jess. No, yeah. I have a feeling we're, we're talking about things that might have led to the breakup. I'm not sure. <laughs> it just dipped into something, yeah. Yeah. Literally, we stepped in it. Stepped. Oh gosh. <laughs> But um, I guess also humor's uh, like de definitely different. I think um, you, there's a lot of slapstick comedy here, but then there's also a lot of like dry humor, like subtle humor. Um, I don't really know what we're doing in the states, but it is definitely different. Maybe it's not as dry. I don't know. Like Alice, what do you think? I, like, so I think. Well, maybe sexual i think the states it, i think it the country represents what is forbidden or not talked about a lot in the mm. country so i think i've seen quite a lot of comedians who talk about jerking off and coming on the pillow and so and i think the people in the states they love that kind of humor but i think because sex is more repressed in a way yeah probably yeah i think the thing is because though the states it's like you know it's it, It should be separated from church and state. But as we have seen, it really is not. And like even with Texas trying to get the, this abortion law like snuck in, you know, and all, all of these different things, you could kind of see that it isn't. So there is, especially like in middle America, there's a lot of repression going on there with uh, gender, sexuality, all of that and just sex as well. So um And, you know, of course, we have federal laws and state laws, so every state's different. But I do think it does kind of reflect some of um, kind of the issues that are still there because, you know, religion does seem to play a big effect in a lot of decisions where it shouldn't because technically we are separated from church and state. But yeah, I think there's always pockets of fundamentalism that, that can really influence uh, yes. the building of taboos. I think there's many taboos that are unaddressed in our culture these days. But um, I think what you're saying is interesting because in a sense, I'm, I'm reminded of what we talked about earlier with freedom of speech and stuff like that. And, and there is such a thing as right wing political correctness. And I think we don't point that out sometimes, you know, this idea of the woman needs to be pure, virginal, just like Virgin Mary and, and never be touched and stuff. That's that's right wing yeah. political correctness. Um, yeah. So it's 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 an interesting one, given the fact that obviously what you're saying as well i'm expressing my sexuality i'm doing burlesque on stage yeah but also the role of the comedian back in the days would have been the court jester it's like the only person that can take the piss out of the king and you could measure the equality of a True. state by whether or not the jester was alive <laughs> <So> yeah <laughs> that's a tricky one 
I'm glad you're still alive, Alice. It means you haven't made too many basement jokes just yet. Yeah, just yeah. yet. Yeah. She's alive for this week, at least. <laughs> She's on stage on Sunday, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it's it's a hard craft and a, a lot of work goes into it because you also fail a lot. And I think Alice and I talked about that before, this idea of being killed on stage. It's quite brutal language, the sense of like, wow, it's a matter of life and death or I killed it you know even just saying I killed it oh Alice has got a book in front of her what's happened I have I got a book because I found a quote earlier today when I went through my notebook I think it's from Marina Abramovich but I somehow didn't write down who said that so don't quote me on quoting this <laughs> if, it, if it is Abramovich can we just say who she is it's, it's this amazing performance artist there's a is Netflix it? documentary on her I think as well yeah yeah she's a performance artist she's very edgy she does quite of a lot of crazy things she pushes yeah. herself it's inter very interesting how she I mean I would not do the things she she would have yeah done. she's done so I, I was I was in Russia because um, part of the master's courses we went over to Moscow and studied at Gitti's their like big art school because Stanislavski our whole technique a lot comes from from Russia and her exhibition was going on there she wasn't there but this is they had video footage of this one that she does where I think there's like a knife there's a gun there's like two other things and she would just be standing there and the gun is fully loaded and she would just have members of the public come in like someone I think one person did take the gun and hold it at her um I don't obviously didn't fire it, but like she'll do these kinds of quite edgy, ex, in a way, experiments. But it's art. It's like yeah. art performance art, but very. Mm, she in this one, she was the object basically. When she wanted to explore what happens when the artist becomes the object. Yeah, and then people really cut her with a razor blade, so she was bleeding afterwards. And but as soon as the six hours or nine hours were over, people just left and didn't even look her in the eye. So it was quite interesting how they, as soon as you say, okay, you can do everything you want to do. I'm now the object. They really get cross lines and do things because they say well it's your responsibility yeah she explores a lot of yeah. things and this quote maybe is from her but maybe not <laughs> anyway even if it isn't from her check out her work anyway quote time so she said uh, this person says maybe i've said it i don't know no i think i, <laughs> I didn't i didn't have said it <laughs> okay so it basically says i've always questioned artists who are successful in whatever they do What that means is that they are repeating themselves and not taking enough risks. So I really like that because I think on the one hand, you to master a craft, you have to repeat yourself. But on the other hand, if you master a craft and you repeat yourself all the time, are you a proper artist or are you exploring? Yeah. Do you develop as an artist? And I think failing is part of the process because if you mm -hmm. stop failing, you have stopped developing. Yeah. That, yeah. that really agrees with me. So... I mean, it's not a fun part of the process because I know like, especially with magic, I think, I mean, I will practice specific tricks over thousands of times because the thing is like, I don't know if you hear like a bad singer or a bad comedian, like people will still go and see comedy again. But sometimes like if you do not do magic right, people are like, well, I don't believe in it. It's not real. And they will a lot of times be like, I don't want to see a magician again, or they just don't. You know, so you kind of feel very pressured to it's like, you know, it's kind of got to be perfect. But the, the tough thing is sometimes like when you're on stage or that's why the rehearsal process is so big. Because I'm like, if you do something a thousand times, the probability or if you're like this 
seems to go wrong. How can I fix it? How can I tweak it? Um, because in failing, sometimes you figure out something else. But like when I'm saying failing, I try to do it more in the rehearsal process than on stage, as I think everyone does. But like even in that, if you're willing to breathe, look back on it and then make improvements on it or be like, okay, maybe if I did it this way. So it's not a fun part of a process, I think for anyone, but sometimes if you're stuck on something in doing, in failing, or if you're like, why is this not going right? It could lead you to another direction, but you have to be very, in a way like open to that because it's scary. Like with comedy, I mean, you are going on stage and like some audiences will get it and some won't, you know, and you're just like, and you don't you don't have to fail on stage necessarily. I think it it also means to fail with a trick when you practice and then you realize yeah. oh, I can't do it by giving up is not uh, developing it. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. Like in, in economics, there is a law around compounding, right? This idea of compound investing, and it's the same with failure. I think it's like a, you constantly like I see it with this podcast. If you if I were to listen to the first episode right now, which I deliberately won't. <laughs> Um, I'd probably cringe because it's changed so much over time. But it's every episode, I just keep thinking, well, what could I have done differently? Do my recording setup, all these sort of things. So you review it one bit at a time and it's like a compounding investment into the next bit and the next bit. And then suddenly it's a vast difference over time, you know? And totally. And then you kind of get the formula that works or you're like, cool, if I do this or if I like just move a centimeter this way or whatever, you're exactly. like, it, you know, like whatever you need. But it, but it takes time to, to grow that, as you've said, yeah. like... But I'm aware we haven't talked much about your magic side of things and, 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 and your performances around that. I mean, I, I have never seen you perform, I have to admit, so I'm intrigued, but I, I, I plan to. I definitely want to, yes, check, you're have to come, definitely. check out your shows. Um, so do you perform in drag or is it a separate thing? With yeah, the magic. No, so I, I perform in drag and then my character, um, it's kind of because I come from an acting background. Like it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm like, wow, this classically trained dancer. So my, I think my tent, my, um, acts tend to have a bit of a storyline and then I do that through music and then through magic. And then, you know, some of them I'll strip down to, maybe there's one I don't, but I do like taking my clothes off. So, um, that is just a preference that I, I like to roll with, but I like to say that through, I, I kind of like to do a lot of storytelling in my acts and using magic as to enhance and tell mm. that story. And has there ever been a time when the trick went wrong? Oh, yes. I, I'm in, so I'm in Aries and I know not everyone's into like whatever astrological signs, but come on, I, I lived, I lived in California. I'm, I, I, hippie dippiness but um so i'm an aries i'm a fire sign so i i love fire i like doing fire magic um wow there was there was one trick where um basically i set my arm on fire on stage um <clears throat> it just caught like i mean i put I, the thing is i put it out you know well i'm lucky you put it out but hello <laughs> that sounds what if i'm like to the ghosts of lauren she didn't make it no i'm here sounds hot um, but in the wrong kind of way <laughs> yeah so and then and then I did that trick again I was at this uh kind of big convention and it takes a little bit to sometimes notice you're on fire so I like did it and then people they look like and I'm like oh that flame is quite big and it kind of like ran up my arm once again I put it out and then I I kind of figured what went wrong with that um so where we, we had to fix that but i mean you know i guess it's one of those things if you're going to play with fire you might get burned so it, it it was fine the show went on i didn't stop it but um yeah that that 
wasn't. Sometimes these things happen. My arm is hurting and I, I think it's just empathy pain at this point. Bloody hell. Yes. <laughs> Alice, yeah. did, did you witness that or did you hear anything about it? What was your reaction when that happened? I think I was there at the show. You were there the, the first time I let yeah. my hand on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I think, and I think the problem with magicians is like, if you are doing something a little riskier, because there definitely are some things that you're like, okay. And, but people wouldn't, if it's going wrong, like they just think it's part of the trick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, it, I mean, because it did look great when my hand's on fire, because it was like a humongous flame. It looks probably fabulous, but um. <laughs> There was this one uh, magician as well, who uh, Kyle, who did the trick wrong, and he just uh, put yeah. So my through his hand, he put a whole nail through his hand. There's this like trick where you put like a nail stake in one of the bags, and then the audience will pick bag one, two, three, and then you slam your hand down on it, and it. There, we know why it went wrong. He was like anyway, um, and his nail the nail went straight straight through like that high up like it looked in, amazing it looked amazing he was i mean it looked paper. insane but and and believe it or not it didn't cut through any of like his bones or major arteries because he does a lot of close-up stuff <laughs> so um so sometimes you know i mean but i yeah. mean this trick brought him into the evening standard because it was just so unique to see somebody with and it was not bleeding so much i think and it was it was interesting no it wasn't because he literally sent me a picture of what happened and he runs a comedy night really really cool comedy night and he sat through the rest of the show and didn't because he's like well i should just like let the show and then he went to the hospital i'm like i think i would have probably after it happened left the building I think everyone would have understood. Wow. I mean, I did have that thought when you, when you said that the nail went right through. As an audience member, I would have, I would have obviously observed him and, and the magic would have been in him not being harmed. So if he managed to act it out as if it was absolutely not painful and finish the show, that that would have kind of saved the trick at his expense. But yeah, yeah, he got into the papers. Great. So whatever he did. <laughs> Any publicity is good publicity. It's fantastic. I mean, give me the nail. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but i mean uh, we were talking about failure and all that sort of stuff and I, i was just getting aware of the fact that can you afford much failure if you're doing fire tricks and stuff like that because just just yeah no. th that's the part that would make me probably hesitant at even starting rehearsals because i know that there's already a risk that i get it wrong from the start yeah i think the thing is because i also i also spin poi so it's like um so for maybe people that don't know what poi is it's um it looks like two balls that are flaming like two fireballs on a chain and you're kind of like swinging it come it's probably it's like big in like polynesia and stuff which is kind of where it came from um so i do that as well um i'm not depending on the venue you're not always allowed to swing that around with fire just because that's even you, you know that's pesky venues but um oh and i have caught the back of my head on fire alice was there when that happened doing that but it's fine you, you know it's like it's, it's like anything as long as you don't panic i just kind of like drop to the ground so someone could put the there's like there's someone there with like towel with water on it because you know you just have to put it on over the flaming area and then it puts it out so i think as long as you're not going to panic too much but 
once again, a lot of these things, though, I know I've, I've kind of described a few of them that didn't go as well, but there is a lot of like safety precautions around it. And if I've been doing this stuff for years and, you know, one thing might have been lighter fluid leaked down my arm, which is like, OK, well, you know, have to fix that. So, um, yeah. but I guess you depending on personality types, you'll put as much risk as you want into something. If that makes sense, I could get that. It wouldn't be for everyone. It, it sounds cool. I mean, I, I want to see it, but I, I'll also probably be watching more closely. And, and you know, yeah. is there any pain on her face? <laughs> but, um, I, I think one thing I wanted to just ask you is around the process of writing jokes or comedy or anything like that. How do you get inspired? Because I'm envisaging that you encounter funny situations in life or whatever with Lauren or with your friends and whatever. Then randomly you might pull out a notebook and be like, hold on, and then write that down. Like, how do you test jokes? Because similar to fire, you don't really know if it's going to land. <laughs> might not have the same consequences though. But hey. Yeah, I think uh, most of the jokes that I write come actually from situations I put myself in by accident. And thankfully there are enough uh, things. Yeah. Actually, so so I wrote a quote, another quote from my book <laughs> that I also found today. She doesn't uh, know who, who wrote it. No, but... it's, it's my quote actually. I wrote that. Oh, wow. Don't waste your time worrying about things that could be good jokes. Wow. So... Um, I don't know if this is English correct, but this is basically my life philosophy. So I think every bad scenario you're in, I always in parallel keep looking where is a good joke about it. And I think that's about this anti-self-help book after my breakup, which was, of course, very sad and traumatic or whatever it was. And she's not talking about the one between her and I. Just, just <laughs> that no, no that, that was a good breakup. <laughs> it was very no, but of course, very it's, it's like thinking Lauren is keeping a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll let everyone know. No, I just mutual, so. No, and that was uh, long ago. But my latest relationship, when we broke up, it was very sad, but then in parallel, I was already looking for jokes and I was thinking, oh my God, this could be, while I was crying, I think, oh, this is a good joke actually. And I think that's that's how I've always been, or that's how I actually observed my mother the first time when she was really upset about something and crying. And I was a child and I've never seen her cry. And then the next week she talked about this story with her friends and I thought, oh my God, the universe goes down again. She will cry and it will be horrible. And she laughed. And I thought, what? Why is she laughing now? This was such a sad story. But I think everything that you give a little bit of time can become funny. Not everything, but a lot of things actually. So even when I was in jail, I was thinking, ah, oh, this is a brilliant story. I mean, I'm so glad this has happened to me. Fabulous. I <laughs> can't wait to tell my mom. I have no idea how I'm getting out of the jail, jail cell or if when, but... Um, but give me a notebook, jail. please. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> silently. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's that on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, I think it's... It is work because I do have to sit down, write things down. And then very often a joke comes quite easily and naturally, but that's the most common joke. So everyone would come up with that eventually. And then it's about pushing back the obvious. So you're really looking where could I give the joke my personal twist? How can I make it more unique, more original? And that's a lot of work. Sometimes it comes mm -hmm. immediately, but sometimes it's just really painful hours of thinking and and putting myself in front of a notebook and just trying to work on it. So I, I rather have it when it's easily and something happens and I can write it, but it's 
I think it's also I cannot forget how much hard work it is. <laughs> so it's not just like, oh, it just comes to me. Yeah. And especially doing a solo show because the solo show you have to structure. And then it's always good to work with callbacks. I mean, I really like structuring things and finding an arc and finding a storyline in it. So that's a fun part because I just like writing things like scripts or or long long form things. Yeah, but that's there's a lot of work involved. <laughs> but that's the thing that I find fascinating. When you listen to a comedy set, you see this sort of spontaneity and it all seems so as if it's just there in the moment. And then this idea of sitting in front of a laptop trying to push past the obvious, that is not spontaneous. That sounds almost... Like, like to me, it sounds like I would be trapped in front of the screen that shouted me, be funnier. And that, that's just so surreal if you really think of that, that that's how it happens. Whereas it's almost romantic to think of you with a little notebook, like on a date or whatever, going, hold on, <laughs> need to write that down. You just... Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's uh, what she does. I can that's really that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely, because... There are there are great jokes during dates, during sex. I mean, and you need to write it down because if you don't write it down, you forget it. Uh, so, yeah, especially because I think <laughs> then you relax. I have I love so much during sex. <laughs> no, no, that was a joke. I don't. <laughs> now this is why Alice and I broke up. Sex was just too <laughs> funny. <laughs> oh my god, it was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, no, but but it's actually it's if you take it with a lighter note, it is quite nice to just think of how you can twist things. It is hard work on the one hand to be funnier, but on the other hand, it's also how can I twist it even more? What doesn't fit this topic at all? And how can I connect these parts? It's just, yeah, it's it's nice to see your brain work sometimes as well. Wow. Well, um, we, we can only recommend your shows in that sense, both of your shows. So we've got what what the frick online on YouTube for the international listeners who want to check out both Lauren and Alice. And then we've got a laughing labia, which is an ongoing thing. And we have Lauren's uh, create your cabaret, which is also in London. And then for my lesbian vegans out there, if you are into it, I go to a lot of different vegan restaurants, especially around London, but I was just performing in Barcelona. So the one coming up this week will be vegan restaurants in Barcelona, but feel free to check it out on Just Veganing, J-U-S-T-V-E-G-A-N-I-N. Fantastic. <laughs> also on YouTube, yes. I have to say the food is great because you, even if you're not vegan, I've eaten so many, uh, I think even meat eaters would enjoy it because yeah. it's, uh, it's delicious food. It's such a food orgasm, how Lauren always says. Yeah, <laughs> Also, maybe for everyone who wants to see a stand-up show online, A Freaking Crazy Year is out now. It's a pre-recorded comedy show called A Freaking Crazy Year and it's available online worldwide. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to check it out. So we're coming to the end of the podcast and I can't let you go without asking two questions. If you could have a lesbian affair with somebody, who would it be and why? Mm. I mean, obviously, like the, the obvious answer... <laughs> Jillian Anderson, but her ears must be ringing today. She's like, "Ooh, um, I guess that's the first one that comes to my mind." And Sandra Bullock, I could do a little sandwich, <laughs> Lauren in the middle, little Sandra Bullock, little Jillian, Boom. happy girl. 
A lot of love for Sandy B. Yeah, kind of give a shout out. I don't know what she's up to these days. I think she adopted a kid, so I feel like she's not been doing as many movies. That's fine. Her and her son could come over and visit me in my nice place in London. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'll make her feel like a real woman. You have a thing for recruiting the Germanic people to London, because I do seem to remember that Sandy B kind of grew, grew up in Nuremberg, Germany. Really? Yeah, she's sort of got a bit of a German thing going. Anyway, just say. Okay. Yeah, I'm down. Alice, how are you feeling about this question? You're right. You're ready. She's rocking in her chair. I'm a little bit worried. There is somebody at my door. One second. <laughs> I like how you're so scared that there's someone at your door. Like it's like people come to the door, yeah. you know. Like, and she looked terrified. I'm like, what are you? Who are you expecting? <laughs> it's like, are you terrified of the Amazon. question? <laughs> I thought you had. Yeah, 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 yeah. She looked so. It was scared. really creepy. Yeah, it, I'm a bit scared. Wait, I close my door again here. Oh God! <laughs> I think she is terrified of the question. Anyway, yeah, Alice watched a scary Netflix series. I'm scared of every <laughs> knock at the door. <laughs> okay, so um, my lesbian fear. So I think just to fulfill my childhood dreams, it would be share because I <laughs> I love her. I, I but maybe I would not, you know. An affair, I would probably not kiss her or have sex with her, but probably I just want to hug her and listen to her sing me to sleep or something. Alice, Alice, <laughs> you can do better. Come on, we want, we want the dirt, Alice. Come on. It sounds like a very innocent affair with Cher. Yeah, it, it, nice friendship. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, like. I would like a friendship with Cher. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely fine there is no right or wrong with this question so we will take it fantastic um well thank you both so much for coming along it's been a pleasure and yeah yeah let's thank you for having us catch up sometime soon thank about so what's much. going on next <laughs> right. yes great thank you very much thank you Okay, busted. You're still listening? Well, two little announcements. Uh, you might have heard Alice talk about her solo show that's available online called A Frickin' Crazy Year. If you look into our episode description, there should be a link with a voucher code for a lesbian affair listeners. So um, you'll, you'll have the benefit of watching it at a reduced rate, which is great. And additionally, what I wanted to say is thank you, thank you, thank you to those generous souls out there that have donated towards my tip jar account, uh, which is intended to cover the production costs of this podcast. Um, it's a non-profit affair for me. I'm literally just doing this for fun. It's massively appreciated. And for those of you who want to donate, uh, the tip jar link uh, is in the episode description.